That's pretty sad. Uh, we had a great going away party for him last night. Uh, the uh, the Hackett's are back from their trips. It's great to have them back. Um, Rashawn McKaylor married now, right? That's a good. That's a good thing. Um, there's a lot going on today. I'm feeling a lot. I don't process it very well. Let's let's uh, read the Bible. Uh, so we're, we're going to keep moving with our Ephesians uh, series today. And, and again, uh, not I'm not trying to get every verse in this book. I'm just I want us to read Ephesians because I want us to have a blueprint and expectations for the church. Uh, you know, I think we, church got really tossed around a lot the past few years, and and man, we just want to see the, the Paul's vision for the church in the book of Ephesians. It's really incredible stuff. And so we've been going through this for a while now. I think this is number nine or ten. That, that we've done uh, out of this book. And what we're trying to do is find those scriptures that give us that blueprint for church, right? That word church being uh, assembly, gathering of people. There's nothing magical in the word itself. It's literally describing people coming together, right? So a more accurate term would be the church of God, right? The, the assembly, the gathering of, of Jesus, right? That's, it's, it's you are not the church, but we are the church, right? So I think that's really important stuff to talk about. So today is Ephesians chapter four. We're, we're gonna do verses like one through three, and this is off the back of um, what I was talking about last week, that prayer that Paul prayed for the church. He prayed for them to be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus, to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ so they can be filled with the fullness of God. And, and so chapters like one through three are a lot of like big picture stuff like that. Like we cover a lot of stuff about the church. In, in chapter four, and we've already kind of, you know, I've been jumping around a little bit. So we've done a little bit of chapter four. Uh, Ian McNeely did a little bit of chapter four, I think. And it, it's, um, it gets like it takes this really practical turn. And so like verse one through three of chapter four is almost like the thesis of everything practical he wants to say to the church about the church. And so I think there's a lot. There's just to me, this is a key, like I would say a cornerstone scripture for how to view church and how to view what we do together all right and so the what like if i'm, I'm going to have one thing to anchor us because i i'm kind of be all over the place when i preach sometimes there's like one concept I, I want us to put out there just to anchor us as we go through these verses we go through some other scriptures is the concept of love inspired unity that's it i want to talk about love inspired unity because i think unity is a word that can get thrown around a lot in this sense of a way that like we make it happen and what we're going to see here in this scripture is that uh, unity is something the spirit makes happen, but then we are called to maintain that unity, okay? But we do it out of a place of love. And so love-inspired unity is what holds us together as a people and as a family, okay? Love-inspired unity is what holds us together. Not something that we make, but something that we strive to maintain out of love for what Jesus did for us. And this kind of love-inspired unity, I think, is so, so important. But, man, one of the, a foundational verse for me and for my faith and for my testimony, I think of John 13, 34. Love one another the way I've loved you. Jesus talking to his disciples. It's not a big crowd. He's actually just talking to a small group of disciples. He's saying, I want you to love each other the way I have loved you. And by this, people will know, the world will know, that you are my disciples. So by this love, the same love that I have for you, that you show to one another, that kind of loving relationship will show that you are my disciples. And that's an incredible marker of discipleship is that one another love amongst uh, the gathering of Jesus' disciples. That's an integral part. And I think it was one of the things that really softened my really crusty, cynical 
judgmental, self-righteous, atheistic heart was seeing Christians that taught me the Bible, but then also with their actions and their lives proved to me what they were teaching. Right. That's something that melted my heart and, and allowed the word to get in there and really take take a root in me was seeing that kind of love. And, and guys, I'm telling you, it, it really doesn't come down to like I, I think when it comes to church, I don't know Look, there is a power in having a lot of people together for church. But I'm telling you that, that the amount of people is not necessary in the equation of having an inspiring love to be displayed, right? Like it's just not, it's not a necessary part of the equation because I, I'm telling you the group that, that uh, uh, transformed my heart and had an impact on me was a small group of campus, like of students uh, at, at New Mexico State University that had like nothing in common with each other. And there was like nine of us. And I like, man, we were weird people. Right. And, the, and like I was the minority in that group ethnically and, and like in interest wise and in personality. I was coming in not a part of that group, like in any worldly sense. But they brought me into that group. Yeah. And not only did they teach me the word, they, they displayed love in their relationships. They displayed love and patience to me. They knew I was I was getting in there just because I liked one of the girls. Right. And, want, and wanted to like date one of these women in the church. They knew what I was doing. I wasn't sly about it. I wasn't like particularly good at trying to keep it a secret. So they knew, but they brought me in anyway and showed me this love inspired unity that blew my mind. It became so important to me that I found this level of family and relationship in such a, to me, weird place to find it. And such a genuine display of discipleship. Because not only did they talk about these things and what I would call play church on Sunday, you saw as they lived their lives together, they're committed to one another. Imperfectly, but committed. Loving, welcoming, serving, giving. So this is an incredible, incredibly important topic. Love inspired unity. Because it is a marker of discipleship. And it is the glue that, keeps the, that, that maintains the unity that the Spirit establishes. Okay? All right. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those are our three verses. And so I'm going to start up top because we got some problems. If I read through this, man, I'm seeing some problems in here we got to deal with. I'm going to start with problem number one. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Okay? Well, what's the manner, what's the thing to which we've been called? The word called, like it's, you know, we kind of do some funky things with this word, but the word literally means like you've been given an invitation to walk in a privileged thing, to, to take part in a privileged thing. Right, so we've been called by everything we've read in chapters 1 through 3 to be a part of this amazing uh, gathering of Jesus, this amazing gathering of God. And now we're being called to, uh, to be worthy of that calling. Now, there's a problem there because as we've talked about it, you, you can't be worthy of being a disciple. Right. You can't be worthy of being saved by God. Like that's the whole right. That's the whole point of the cross. Right. Is that we can't be saved. So Jesus had to come die for us because we could never have enough goodness in us to leverage that salvation on our own. That's the whole point of the cross. And so Paul introduces us here with, you know, a kind of a problem. How do you be worthy of something you can't be worthy of? Right. 
Well, funny enough, Philippians is a really similar book to Ephesians. And so I'm going to read in, in Philippians, just flip there real quick. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says something very similar to the church in Philippi. He says, only let your manner of, this is uh, chapter 1, verse 27 in Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of what you're standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Really similar verse to what we just read. So Paul in, in, in the Ephesian scripture says, be worthy of the calling. Paul in the Philippian scripture says, be worthy of the gospel. And I think those two, there's overlap there, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, we're called to be in the church. The only way we're, we're able to be in the church is through the gospel. And so I think we just got to do a little work on this because we can't be worthy of the gospel, right? So we have to change how we think about what's going on here because I think we hear that. We hear be worthy of the gospel and we hear, okay, we'll fight to earn the, the gospel, Okay, and that's not really how this language is being used. Rather, I just want to change how we're thinking. Maybe we might be thinking about that. What he's saying is live a life, walk in such a way, and that's that term walk. It means live a life that reflects the gospel. Live a life that is an appropriate response to the gospel, right? Live a, live a life, walk in such a way that shows that you have experienced the gospel, it shows that you understand the love of Jesus for you. Live in such a way that reflects the reality of, of Jesus' love grabbing a hold of your heart, right? And, and, and controlling you to, to live as So it's like live in such a way that reflects the gospel. Is that what's going on there in that sentence? And here's why that's really, really important. Because, well, again, John 13, 34, that's the way people are going to know we're disciples, is, is if we live a life that reflects that gospel. But I think also, as, we, as this verse keeps going, right, it says, I want you to walk in a manner, manner worthy of your calling. Well, why? Well, let's keep moving the verse. Verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Okay, there's a problem. Paul's like, hey, I need you to bear with one another. Well, why would, why would we be asked to bear with one another? Because you're hard, you're like, listen, like, if you're honest, you're kind of hard to be around. You're a difficult person to be, if, like, if we're being honest, each one of us has things that make us difficult to be around, right? We're all sinners at the end of the day, just because we're gathered in this group or in this room doesn't change that fact. And, and if you get two sinners under the same roof together, there's going to be problems. There's going to be friction. There's going to be sin going around and it's not, it's not going to feel good all the time. And so this is. This is huge because that means being a part of the church is not all, you know, blue skies and rainbows and puppies and stickers all the time, right? It's like being a part of the church. And if you're living that kind of realness of life, there's going to be friction and bumping. And, and so, like, you're like, you're not going to enter in a church that's going to be perfect. You're going to have to bear with one another. That's going to be a part of this is learning to bear with one another. But you bear with one another what? In, in patience and in gentleness and kindness. You don't bear with one another like, oh, this guy, am I right? Like, that's not the kind of bearing with one another we're talking about here. We're talking about a bearing with one another that displays that you, have, that you understand the gospel. You understand that, hey, you know what? You're kind of a mess too. That, that, that understands like, okay, I, I, God has forgiven me of a ton. God puts up with a ton in my life. I understand that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to extend that too. But the problem is you will not be able to extend that kind of love if you're not walking in a way that's worthy of the gospel. 
if you're not living the kind of life that reflects the gospel, that you're not going to be able to extend that kind of love-inspired gentleness, kindness, humility. You'll probably be more of like a self-righteous, kind, and gentle, and patient, right? You'll probably be kind of like a, uh, a uh, frustrated or cynical kind of patient, you know. That's different, man. Like when you experience that kind of patience from somebody, man, you know that's different than when you experience the kind of patience that's just like, man, I love you. I'm a mess too. Let's just work on Like that's different when you feel that, experience that. That creates a totally different church culture. So, yeah, we need to extend this kind of bear with one another, but we bear with one another not because it's like, oh, I guess I have to. Like you think that's how God views you? Well, like maybe. I don't know. I think maybe sometimes we can't think God views us like that. Like, ah. He sinned again? Seriously? Well, I guess because I'm so good, I'll put up with it. That's really not the kind of, like, that's not really what I see biblically, right? God loves us because Jesus died for us. Like, God just doesn't put up with you. God loves you right now. And so we don't just put up with one another. We genuinely strive to love and bear with one another because we understand what God's done for us. And, um, there's actually a whole book about this in the Old Testament, right? It's called Hosea. And Hosea, I mean, man, the Old Testament prophets, they had, they had a tough time. Like you read through any of their ministries and you wouldn't want any of their ministries. And like Hosea's whole ministry, check this out, it's crazy. Hosea's whole ministry was to take a prostitute as wife and have kids with that prostitute of a wife and to be committed with, to her knowing that he would, she would cheat on him and he would have to take her back. That was Hosea's ministry. How about that one? <clears throat> right? And the whole point God was trying to make is like, this is what I do for you. I bring you in. I know you're going to cheat on me. I know you're going to leave me. I'm going to take you back. And that's what we're going to be doing here. And it's not just for the Israelites. That's us too, right? God dies for us. Like, Jesus dies for us. God accepts Jesus' sacrifice in our place, knowing that we're going to come into the church and we're going to keep sinning. And we're going to keep hurting people. And we're going to keep messing up. And he says, I take you in here and I know you're going, to, you're going to leave me and your heart's going to wander and it's going to stray and you're going to hurt people and you're going to mess up, but I'm going to take you in anyway. And as long as you come back to me, I'm going to be right here. I will be faithful to you despite you. That's, right? And so that's the same relationship he wants to have with us now, and it's the same way he wants us to love everybody in this room. He doesn't want us just to put up with each other. He wants us to be committed to one another. Acts 2.42, right? After the 3,000 were baptized, it says they were what? Devoted, right? They were devoted to the teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to each other. This is the kind of, this is like, we don't just like put up with each other in this room. We are devoted to one another in, in a kind of love that, that replicates the love that God has for you personally. You now display that to everybody in this room. And then that's going to be a love-inspired unity. That's going to be the kind of unity that holds a group together in a way that is beyond uh, uh, man-made, manufactured uh, business plans for churches. And like it or not, a lot of, you know, it can be tempting to look at a church that way. I want to find some way to organize this thing and this makes sense in a corporate way. And I'm just going to make unity happen. And what we learn in the scripture is you don't make unity happen. The spirit makes unity happen. 
The Spirit makes unity happen because it's the Spirit that cleanses you. It's the Spirit that sanctifies you and seals you and adopts us through the blood of Jesus, following him by faith into the waters of baptism. The Spirit raises us to a new life and creates a new family in this room and tries to totally reorient the way we think about family. This is all chapters one and two, that no longer, like you, family is this. You are now a part of a body of Christ, and the hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. Like we need each other. And so we, then he goes, like he goes on to say, this is verse three, being eager to maintain that unity. Are you eager? Like there's no trick behind that word. It means be eager. That's what it means. Be eager to maintain this unity. But again, you do it out of a life that's being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. So it's love inspired. You act this way so we can maintain the unity that the spirit created and called us into. That we maintain that unity of which he created in us. So we don't create it, we maintain it. Well, why do we need to maintain it? Well, I think a lot of reasons. I think one, things attack unity. Be around in church long enough, you've seen the unity of the church be attacked. You see it get attacked by selfishness. You see it get attacked by false doctrines. You see it get attacked by discouragement, faithlessness. Like, unity gets attacked. And just like any other family, you need to maintain the unity of that family. But like, with, with, in your households, Unity doesn't like, you know, you have to maintain that unity. There's a unity that happens when, when, when Stacey and I were married. There's a holy unity that happens in that marriage. But then, like, as we all know, there's a reason why they call it the honeymoon phase, right? That's the whole thing is the honeymoon phase because at some point, unity, it's like not going to be all sunshine and rainbows and unity is going to get attacked. Sin is going to attack your unity in your marriage. Sin is going to attack your unity in, in your family unit, the relationship between you and your kids. Man, my kid's a year and a half, and I already have seen my sin attack the unity between me and my son, right? Like, it's not, like, it happens. And so we need to make an effort to maintain unity. Well, what does that look like? In, in my family, it means constant, open communication between Stacey and I. It means having people help us be consistently open and healthy in how we communicate with each other. Right. It means like having a consistent time together as family. Like we got date night Tuesday night. We don't we don't mess with that. If we have to, we've got a flex night on Thursday. But we even have that planned in our schedule. Like it's something that doesn't get touched. Like date night happens in the Lauterbach house. All right. Like you you we have to maintain. It's the same thing with church. Like, OK, you, you're baptized into the church. Great. You moved into Eugene or you're baptized here in Eugene. Great. Maintain that unity. It doesn't, just, it doesn't just like it falls. It naturally deteriorates. It falls apart because of things attacking it. Because of our sin attacking it. Outside things attacking it. And so it's like, you know, we don't set up church a church calendar just because I want to keep people busy. You know, we don't set up a church calendar just because, you know, we want to be a fun social club. Like we set up a church calendar because we're a family. And family needs consistent communication, consistent maintenance, consistent devotion. That devotion never goes away. Consistent. So family needs maintenance. The things we do together act as maintenance for that family. The going away party last night, Brad Hannah, maintenance. It's maintenance for unity. 
Keep us together. It's exciting to celebrate a transition in somebody's life and to share. I mean, the sharing last night was awesome. I felt like we haven't done any sharing in church for like a year. Like the sharing was just amazing. Everybody had something cool to say. Like when you're experiencing that, you're experiencing the maintenance of family. You want to think of it that way. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it even hurts you to think of it that way. But that's like the reality is we're maintaining families. But we do that in such a way that comes from the love-inspired unity, right? So I want to read the scripture in Matthew 18. Jesus uh, gives his disciples a parable for uh, forgiving one another. And as you guys are turning there, there's another similar verse to all this in Colossians chapter 3. I'll just read it. You guys go to Matthew 18. In Colossians chapter 3, um, I actually read this when we did Emily's Yosemite's wedding. I think this is such a powerful verse. So as you turn to Matthew 18, I'm going to read Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 13 says, Bear with one another, and if anybody has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. That is a radical forgiveness. As the Lord forgives you, man, I look at that, I'm like, man, give me a lot, dude. (laughs) It's so we forgive each other. That's the standard of forgiveness. It's the same way God's forgiven us. That's the command. That's pretty crazy. And again, it comes from that love and like, why is the Lord has forgiven us? Because we want to connect with how the Lord has forgiven us. We want to understand, again, it's walking in a manner worthy of the gospel that we get it and that we extend that. And man, like this whole, this is a, this is a really cool passage on forgiveness. And I'll read through it, then I'll make my point about it. Uh, Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. So he's saying this because Jesus just did a teaching on, on sinning against each other and how do you deal with that. And there's a really cool verse that's always taken out of context. But, you know, so that, that's what's going on. And so, he, and so Peter's like, okay, you just taught me about forgiveness. I got to forgive people. We got to work things out. Well, how much? That's a good question. Because if you're in a tense relationship or, well, let's say you're in a marriage and you, you have a fight. And you really work, man. Like, if you have a fight and you really got to work through that fight to forgive that person, like, that takes some work to do that. It's like, man, how many times in a day do I got to do that? That's hard work, right? If you forgive somebody, it's like, man, I got to forgive them again. I don't know if I emotionally have the capacity to forgive something again. Well, well, you know, so it's a fair question. How often do I got to forgive somebody? You know, Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's hyperbole. I don't know that I've ever even had to forgive somebody 77 times a day. Like that's a lot of, basically saying, keep forgiving them. Somebody sins against you, what do you do? You forgive them. Well, how do you forgive? Because I mean, look, there's some things that are easy to forgive, right? If I drink all of the whole milk in the fridge, Stacey's going to forgive me pretty easily. She's going to go get more, well, I hope, you know? I took lactate pills. It's like, you know, this is a bad example. Uh, <laughs> this is a bad, this is a bad example. Uh, so, the, but the point is there's things that are easy to forgive and things that are not so easy to forgive. And so how do you forgive somebody if it's all these really hard to forgive things? Well, you're commanded to do it. So for, that's number one. You don't not forgive them. That's not an option. So it's like, okay, that might be hard to hear. So then how do you do it? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay his master, oh, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. All right, we'll stop right there. So this is a kind of forgiveness that is not easy to forgive. It's, it's the level of it that the servant's being forgiven of by the king. It's a level of transgression that the servant is going to be sold along with his wife and his children. Like this is not a, a small debt that's, that we're talking. This is a big debt if that's what's on the line. Yeah. Okay. So this is not an easy thing. This is a, this is a big thing. And so he is forgiven. He pleads with the king. He's forgiven. And then he goes out. He's got somebody that owes him money. And he's like, give me that money. Right. It's like, whoa, what? Are you serious? Well, why would he act that way? Because he's not grateful for what he got. That's the whole point of the scriptures. Like, look, man, don't you see what you were forgiven? If you were forgiven that, couldn't you spare this dude his, his jump change? Like, couldn't you like, man, we're talking life versus money here. Couldn't you forgive him because you were just forgiven? Well, let's keep reading the scripture. Verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had, uh, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Like, yeah, I would be too. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Small break. I understand that there's things that happen to us in life that are incredibly difficult to forgive. There are certainly those of you in this room that have experienced things more extreme than I've experienced, more traumatic. I can't pretend to know that. I only know that it's harder than what I experience. So this is where this verse just gets really honest and hard and challenging because the standard doesn't change. If we don't forgive, God, the king, in this parable that Jesus is telling, the king called that servant wicked for not forgiving. If we are having a heart that cannot forgive, that's a wicked heart. It's like, dang, thanks, Daniel. That's great. <laughs> like, but, well, no, okay. If we have a wicked heart, we probably should know about that. Because if you have a wicked heart, I'm guessing you're not experiencing a very peace with God kind of life. Yeah? So that means there's something there that God sees that he can bring you closer to him if we work through it. You'll be brought to a fuller life. Okay? If it's worth you. So, uh, verse um, 32, or 33. And should uh, not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Verse 34. And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. 
So we're not even talking surface level forgiveness. We're talking <coughs> genuine from the heart. Now I'm telling you guys, I think the only way this is truly possible <coughs> to experience this kind of forgiveness, to experience this kind of love-inspired wrapping people around me rather than pushing them away, I think it's only going to happen when you understand that Christ forgave you, that God forgives you, that you've done things to hurt people, that you've done things to mess up, that if it was just you and your good acts standing before God at the end of the day, hell's where you're going. No question. And until we can be in that position and understand that God's like, no, I love you anyway. Jesus died for you. It's forgiven. I love you. Until we can understand what we've been forgiven of, it is incredibly hard to display that kind of love to others. That's why love-inspired unity is so important. That's why walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is critical to the unity of the church, to maintaining that unity. It's because we need to understand the love he has for us. And when we display that kind of love, that is what, that is what maintains the unity. That's what's on the line. It's critical to get that. And it can be hard to understand that, hard to work through that. But I think this is the kind, this love-inspired unity, not manufactured, not man-made, not whatever, it's this love-inspired unity that brings us together. It's confronting these things on a heart level that is keeping you distant from others. Forgiving them because of how Jesus forgave you. Living that life worthy of the gospel, that's the kind of unity that will bring us together will maintain who we are. Amen? Thank you very much. Daniel, thank you so much for that message. Um, in fact, the scripture I've got, you guys can be turning to 1 John uh, 2, 5, and 6, talks about that same thing. Um, unity in fact, when we come to communion, we're really talking about communing with God. And what we typically think of is forgiveness. But uh, let me read this here. <clears throat> but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's quite a challenge. That's like the uh, uh, Ephesians 4 scripture. So, you know, when we think about communion, it's like we're all in on the forgiveness of sins. We, we need that, in fact, to be unified with God and unified with each other. But the walking is Jesus part, you know, causes pause. You know, when I read that, it's like, you know, all the time I'm thinking, how do I do that? How do I fulfill God's purpose? I mean, Paul, you can see the, the disciples' life. They, they gave themselves to uh, the purpose. So, the, you know, when I think of communion, you know, visualize the Last Supper, you know, with Jesus with his 12. They're sitting around reclining, eating. And, you know, basically, what did Jesus have to say to them? You know, the key message we get from this, we always read those scriptures, it's like, well, this is my body, you know, broken for you. The bread is my body and my blood is shed for you. But what else did he tell them at that, that time? He said, one of you will betray me. And later on, he says, you'll all fall away. You'll all split the scene. And that, that's what happened shortly. So why did that happen? The world was 
you know, assaulting the disciples in the first century, and they're still under attack on us. We've got a message, and really what he's asking, asking us to do is testify to God's grace. You know, and earlier on in 1 John, what did he say to him? You know, we testify that Jesus is the Messiah. We're testifying to these things. So our job is to testify. And, and the challenge is, you know, when we have our quiet times, is how do we motivate ourselves? You know, what do we see in our lives? You know, how does our heart get captured by his purpose? Because we've got the world out there trying to grab it. And, you know, I've been in the world a few years, and, and all these things get my attention. Oh, I want to design this or build this or do this or go there. And I think we're all under assault from the world. We're drawn to do these things. And it distracts us from our purpose, you know, of testifying. When you think of the disciples, the apostles, you don't see them distracted. You read them under assault. There were unity was important, as Daniel's talking about. Their survival depended on their prayers for each other, their unity, their support. I mean, you know, I've done a lot of things in my life, but as I grow older, I'm getting tired, believe it or not. You know, it's like, and, and I'm losing the motivation to do a lot of things. I can kind of relate to my dad, you know, as he got 90, he he didn't even want to get out. I We drive on the Daytona Beach beach and I'd pull out the chair for him and say, there you go, dad. And he goes, no, I'll just sit in the car. I'm thinking, it's a beautiful beach. He says, I'm too tired. I'll just sit in the car. So, I mean, in a sense, this is almost a blessing. It's like, I think we go through times in our lives. It's like, I realize I'm really on my last lap in terms of strength and what I can do. It's like, I want to make this count. You know, how do I get myself to focus? So I think this is a challenge for each of us. It's like, you know, we think we got all the time in the world, but, you know, God could say, this night your soul is required of you. How do you answer? So keeping the focus is so key. And here's what Paul said at the very end. Lost a uh, he says in Acts 20, he says, but I consider my life of no value if only I may finish my course and complete the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. The ministry of testifying to the good news of God's so that's our challenge. How do we get ourselves and each other focused on the ministry of God's grace? We're living vessels of the week. We live his grace, we depend on it, and we want to, I want to see God's power work through myself and the whole church here. I want to see us like the first century. It's like we get together and rejoice and the place where we're praying is shaken, you know, that type of stuff. It's real when I read the scriptures, but we need that passion and that determination to get there. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for sending your son for our forgiveness of sins. Uh, I just pray that we can all be motivated by it. We can appreciate your forgiveness, but also we can be motivated to testify to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, amen. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate the community message, guys. We're going to have a couple announcements here and then uh, close out with one final song. Just to get some of this stuff out of the way. Men's Midweek is this Wednesday. And uh, Dennis, can we have it at your house again? Is that all sure. next? Thank you. Uh, and then the, ne- the following the following Sunday, so the next two Sundays, March 26th and April 2nd, will be house churches. Um, the lottery, we're doing it by family groups. And so this next weekend, um, uh, myself as well as uh, Stacey Trey, we're going to be gone at the campus retreat over by Mount Hood. Um, so our fa- and uh, I think of Sean McKaylor going to be off on their honeymoon trip. So our family group lottery box, just get a hold of Richard Dennis and, and join one of their groups, Richard Dennis. Get info out to your groups about where you'll be meeting the, the next couple weeks. Um, <clears throat> oh, yeah, March 31st, uh, our next fellowship uh, dinner. Uh, we're calling it a brisket night because it's the night Cody and I are going to be uh, smoking some briskets for everybody. Uh, and then, of course, the women's retreat is going to be coming up in, in April 7th and 8th, right before Easter. And then I, I, I want to keep plugging the marriage workshop on April 29th. That is going to be a Saturday. It starts at 11 a.m. and we're going for a block of like three hours. We're gonna have a class, lunch, second class, and, and Luke and Amanda Donatello are coming down from Bellingham to teach that for us. So please be there um, if you're married. Uh, there's no registration fee. Uh, please just come. Um, lastly, as we mentioned, this is uh, Brad and Hannah's last Sunday service with us. They are leaving Friday, correct? So if we could be praying for their trip, it, Brad and Hannah, it's so good to have you. Uh, they were great sports. We put them on the spot last night. We shared about them. It was awesome. I got the permission to put them on the spot one more time today. Yeah. Brett Hennig, can you go ahead and come on up? We have a gift we want to give you guys. It's not much, but it's a little duck shirt for Waverly. Um, it is bigger than she is now because we want there to be room for her to grow into it. All right. So she can she use it for some time. So, guys, thank you so much for everything you are who you've been to our church here. We love you guys. We're grateful. I would love to. Can I just pray? I'll pray for contribution, but also for them in their trip. God, thank you so much for the gift of family, for the gift of Brad and Hannah being members of this family for so long and all they've given and all who they are and all who they're, even their, the joy that their daughter Waverly has brought in our lives. Truly, they will be missed and they are leaving a hole and that is a testament to who they are and how you've used them in our lives. So God, we're grateful for them. We pray you bless their travels, that they have a safe trip, and we pray you bless this next chapter in their life. We're so grateful for you and the way you bring us all together. God, of course, I pray for contribution. Uh, that can be uh, sacrificial, that it can be uh, something that is out of a response of your love for us as anything else, Father. So we're so grateful for you. We pray for that, but God, we pray for the cling signs in their next chapter in life. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.